and good morning to you all. It's a joy to be with each of you this morning and uh, to be gathered with you in worship. We're right in the middle of our series on the life of Peter, and so every time we pick up another story uh, of Jesus that involves Peter, what it does is it kind of it, it forces us to jump forward in uh, the gospel story of Jesus. And so this morning we're looking at uh, we're in Jerusalem with the disciples. Uh, earlier in the week, the triumphal entry had already happened. Uh, Jesus has taught. He's gotten uh, he's gone nose to nose with some of the religious leaders in the city. Uh, his crowd of followers is dissipating and kind of sliding away from him. And it is Thursday night, and he's gathered. It's Monday Thursday. He's gathered with his disciples. Uh, around the taking of the Passover, and this is last night, Jesus' last night with them before he's crucified. And so let me ask you a question. If you knew this was your last night, uh, and you had time with your closest family and friends, what would you do? And uh, more importantly, maybe what would you talk about? This passage is the very beginning of what we call John, or Jesus's farewell discourse, which are some of his last parting words to the disciples before he goes uh, to die. And what we see when we look at that are that Jesus spent most of his time talking about what he wants their life together to look like. And so that's what we'll be talking uh, about this morning. Uh, We're looking at John 13. I'll read verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, 
nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be amongst us and at work in this room, speaking the truth of Jesus directly to our hearts. Tell us the story of the gospel again and help us to see Jesus, to love him, to follow him, that you would give us strength and courage, convict and remind us of your constant love and grace for us. And Father, I pray that you would help with the words that I say this morning. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when the weather starts to change a little bit, and we've all noticed it happening, and most of us are rejoicing about it, uh, the air gets a little cooler and a little more breezy. We see colors of orange and yellow show up on trees, and gourds are landing on people's porches and pumpkins everywhere. This is my favorite time of year. And uh, of course, I can't help but think about uh, one of my very favorite holidays that this is all kind of pointing to, and it's hard to believe, but Thanksgiving is only about a month and a half away. Can you believe it? Um, and, uh, and many of us have traditions that surround that holiday, do we not? Many of us kind of already know who we want to get together with and uh, where we want to go, and, uh, and many of us have very particular foods that we're going to eat during that time, and that we'll, we will only eat during that time at that meal. Like, that's the only time my grandmother's cranberry relish shows up on the table, and none of us like it, but, uh, but it, it would be weird if it weren't there, okay? Uh, and I bring that up because there's something very similar going on in this passage, that just like the taking of a Thanksgiving dinner can, can serve as kind of an anchor to our family and communal life together— Jesus has gathered with his disciples over the Passover, and everything that happens, the food that they ate, the wine that they drank, the scriptures that they would remember and read to each other, was pointing to something that anchored their uh, communal and religious life together. And it was all meant to remind them of the time God moved in a great way on Israel's behalf when he delivered them from Egyptian captivity. The whole meal was pointing to God's greatness on their behalf. And if you read Luke's accounting of this story, you'll see that during the taking of this same meal, the disciples are in an argument with each other. And what are they arguing about? Well, they're arguing about which one of them is the greatest. And so you need to see that there's a certain irony about that happening at this particular meal, a meal that points to God's greatness, and during the middle of it, all of the disciples are talking about how great they are. I know all of us have examples of how holiday meal conversations have gone wrong, right? And sometimes they're silly, and, uh, and some, like they can be, in a weird way, they can be a fond memory, and sometimes they're ugly and hurtful. And I don't know which one this is, probably a little of both, but that's the context. That's the context when Jesus rises from supper and begins to redefine for them, how does he do it? I got two points for you. The first is he redefines greatness by serving us freely. And then he redefines greatness by uh, by freeing us to serve. He serves us freely. 
and he frees us, frees us to serve. First, he serves us freely. This is really about what Jesus has done. And you see in the first uh, few verses, you get a picture of what's just going on in Jesus' head as he goes into the meal. And we see that he's nurturing an awareness of the times. If you look in verse 1, you see that he knew his hour had come to, the depart, to depart out of this world. He knew the next day that he's going to die on a cross. His death was coming. And he's also perfectly aware that someone in his inner circle is working to betray him. And so you've got these sinister overtones cast over the whole taking of this meal. Death and betrayal. And you would think that this would give him some measure of unrest as he's going through this meal. But that doesn't seem to be the case with Jesus because he's also aware that when he dies, he's going to return to be with the Father. That's noted twice in verses 1 and 3. And so one of the things that this tells us as we look at this passage is simply that whatever we're about to see happen to Jesus, Jesus enters into willingly. That he knew what was laid before him, and he went anyway. And that's because he knew that he was participating in the redemptive mission of God. That he was part of the inexorable movement of God's love to rid the world of sin, and simply nothing was going to get in his way. And that's when we see this great man, the God-man himself, rise from supper and completely surrender his dignity. The passage says that he took off his clothes and he tied a towel around his waist. He adopted the outfit of a slave. And he went to his disciples and he took their feet in his hands and he washed them. And he wiped them down with the towel that was attached to his waist. And I don't think, I think it's hard to rip. And everybody stared. Because only the lowest of low servants did this job. This, this was a job that you only did if you were ordered to. And it was considered disgusting to handle somebody's feet. It was a job that robbed you of all dignity that you thought you had. And in some places, it was considered so low and so servile that, that it, the practice of it was even outlawed. And so that explains why we see Peter react the way that he did. The Greek is very emphatic. It says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And he says, you shall never, ever, like never, ever wash my feet. And in that moment, Peter is simply articulating what there's no doubt that any one of the disciples were thinking in that moment. And it's the question that we would be thinking too. Just what is Jesus doing in this moment? And the text tells us. Look back at verse 1. The text says that he, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. That Jesus was on a mission of love. 
And he was compelled, drives him to surrender his dignity in order that he might give dignity to the people that he loves. Because that's what love does. Uh, My uh, grandparents on my mother's side are passed away now. I grew up calling them nanny and granddaddy. And uh, my my nanny passed away before my grandfather did. And... uh, and during her later years, she really suffered with dementia. And if you've ever been around that, you know how hard that is for someone who's suffering with dementia. And you know how hard it is for those who are seeking to give care to someone who is suffering with dementia. And I remember, I think I was in my early 20s. Like I was, I was a young man who was going to their house just to visit with them. And this was the first time that I walked into the house and she didn't remember who I was like that. It was that, like, it, it had taken that, that much a hold of her. And I was sitting with her in the living room, and there wasn't much we could do. I was just visiting. There wasn't much we could talk about. I remember she was just sitting there wearing a robe and slippers and watching daytime TV, and I'm just sitting there. We're not talking much, not much to talk about. And that was when my granddaddy walked in the room, and he was a gentleman, And he came up next to my nanny, and uh, he pulled out of his pocket a pair of fingernail clippers and a file. And he took my nanny's hand and his hand, and just one by one started to clip her nails and file them smooth. He seemed to take great care. And then when he was done with that, he reached down and took her feet in his hands, and he pulled off her slipper. And one by one, he cut her nails, filed them smooth. And then he pulled out a bottle of nail polish. And he began to paint her nails, one after the other. And he didn't say anything until he got, to, until he got all done. And then he looked up at me and he smiled and he said, there we go. Just like she liked Even sure that she knew who the man was that was doing that for her. But when I was a young man, I was watching a man love his wife to the very end. And it looked like he was fighting for her dignity. Because that's what love looks like. And the saddest part of that whole story for me, I think, is that I don't think Nanny really knew or understood in her final years just how much my granddaddy loved her and fought for her, cared for her, surrendered his dignity in countless ways. In order to fight for hers. And that leads me to want to ask you a question. Are you familiar. With just how much. Jesus loves you. And has surrendered his dignity. On behalf of yours. Because every element of this story. Bears a graphic reality. To just what Jesus has done for his people. That Jesus was acting out a redemptive plan that was agreed upon by the members of the Trinity even before the creation of the world. And it's very intimate the way the Bible talks about this. It says, for you as God's people, he knew you before the creation of the world. And that Jesus, when Jesus came, he was coming for you. Because he was on a mission of love for you. 
And he was burdened for you. And as he lives out of God's redemptive mission, Jesus' mission of, the, of love was coming for you. And listen, nothing was going to get in his way. Because you were worth it to him. And when he came, he surrendered his dignity. That Philippians 2 passage that we read earlier in the story, earlier in the service, is all about how Jesus surrendered the dignity that was due him to leave heaven and come to earth. He embraced his own humiliation. And so he surrendered his, his dignity all because he sought your dignity. That when he goes to the cross, he, he, he comes to earth as a baby and then he goes to the cross in the outfit of a slave dying the death of a criminal. Why? So he could wear the indignity of our sin and one day present you clean in righteous robes. Before the Father, he suffered indignity as he was fighting for your dignity. And it's one thing to bear witness to someone's act of love, but it's, it's something else entirely to believe that you're loved that way. And let me tell you, that's the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel, that he did that for you. That he was on the cross and had you on his mind. And he said, she's worth it to me. He's worth it to me. And so the question that's before us is, what are you going to do with a story like that? How are you going to steward the te your testimony of redemption in the world as you wait for Jesus to come back for you? And in this passage, what we see is that just as Jesus serves us freely he also frees us to serve that he issues a strong call on his disciples in these moments but it all comes in the context of his deep love for his people and you see this early on you get a sense of this when you look at Peter's response to Jesus this has got to be top three one of my favorite conversations that Peter ever has with Jesus, okay? Because he does a, a complete 180, right? Like, he, he can't even hold his exuberance. First, he's passionate about Jesus not washing his feet. And then suddenly, he's like, wash all of me. But what's going on there? First, look at verse 8. You shall never, ever wash my feet. Then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And what Jesus is saying is that my cleansing work on your behalf is essential if you're going to have any life with me. And so that's like an unconditional requirement uh, for sharing in the life of Christ. And then Peter like turns on a dime and uh, he says, well, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. That's the Peter we love, isn't it? Like he's always the first guy off the helicopter. Um, <laughs> and, and you see just how much he cares about life with Jesus. That's what he wants the most. That's what he's most passionate about. And here's the kicker. To, to Peter, if life with Jesus matters, then nothing else does. Then he's willing to suffer anything. He's willing to swallow anything. There's nothing he can't 
deal with because he has the only thing that matters to himself. And, and what I want to convince you of is simply that that is freedom itself. That if Jesus is everything to you, then the things that we suffer in this life matter less to us. And so he's freed by, he's freed by love, and then you see that he's assured by love. Look at uh, verse 10. Jesus responded to Peter with these assuring words. He says, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, Peter, are clean. What's going on there, okay? Let's parse this out really quick. Jesus is saying that once you've been cleansed by him, then you're clean forever. There's no need to bathe again, okay? He's talking about justification, that as you come to Jesus by faith in Christ of God, and you never need to bathe again, that is something that's been put on you, and, it ne- and you can't lose it. You feel the assurance that's happening here? And then he says, except for your feet, those things that get dirty as you make your way through the world, those things will need cleaning. And here he's talking about sanctification, that just as you have been just as you have been justified in the eyes of the Father, so God is at work in you, sanctifying you as well, cleaning you as you make your way through the world. Sanctification is really the work of turning you into who you already are as a justified believer in the eyes of God. Okay, sanctification cleanses you. Justification says you are clean, okay? Justification is how you are cleansed. Sanctification is how you are kept clean. And here's what I want you to see. The assurance is found in that Jesus is taking responsibility for both. That both of these acts of purifying you are done by God on your behalf. And if that's true, it means you can't lose it. If that's true, it's talking about a robust commitment of God's on your behalf to present you full and clean before God the Father. And so we don't need to make our way through these li- this life worried that we're going to lose what we've already been given. You can't lose what you never earned. It's the gift of God given to you. He frees you by his love, and he assures you with his constant love. And it's in that context that Jesus issues a call to love. Do you understand what I've done to you? If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Jesus showed his disciples what their life meant to each other. What were they arguing about a minute ago? Who was the greatest? Who outranked each other? They're like constructing some kind of weird hierarchy of importance. And I bet even in their argument, none of them would have thought themselves better than Jesus. And yet here's Jesus. Washing their feet. And he's saying, if I then, you call me Lord and teacher, and so I am. And if I'm willing to do this, then you're not above doing this either. 
He's calling them to a radical love. And this is what he is saying should characterize our life together. And I can't help but think that this would have affected how the disciples looked at each other across the table that night. And if that's true, then it should have the very least changed how or affect how we look at each other across this room. Because what he's calling us to is a radical devotion and love and care for each other. And we need each other, don't we? He's calling us to lay down the ways that we compete with each other. He's calling us to to look, to seek, to serve somebody else's interests at the expense of our own. He's saying that's what should characterize the life of my people as they enjoy fellowship with each other. And so listen, and I promise you, I'm not thinking about any one person in particular, okay? Uh, uh, But the drive you nuts. That's just normal, okay? Uh, There might be people in this room that get on your last nerve. Or there might be people in this room that when you look at them, you see something difficult or ugly. And you might even be right about that. But listen, when you look at the people who belong to Jesus by faith, I want you to first see that you are looking at someone that Jesus looks at as someone of immense value. That Jesus died for that person. And that needs to first characterize how we see each other. And And it should also characterize our willingness to serve each other, right? Like it, 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 should, uh, it should compel us toward a deep willingness for each other, even to embrace a responsibility for each other. Well, what does that look like? Well, I got to tell you, I see this kind of thing at work in our church in just about a million different ways already. Like I, I, there is great beauty of this kind of foot-washing work that's already happening in our church in profound ways. If somebody has a baby in this church, it's a daggone competition to get on the meal calendar, okay? Like, I I can never get on that meal calendar fast enough before the first month and then the second month fills up, you know? Like, people are serving each other, aggressively serving each other in really sweet ways. And when someone gets hurt, it's, it's, it's a thing of beauty to just watch people in our church move toward them. And I'd be remiss if I didn't say that over the last couple of months, as, we, as we've grieved together as a body, I've also never been prouder of a church in the way that you sought to care for hurting people. But there will always be ways that we can grow. Always. And so we can hear this challenge from Jesus, set in the assurance of his constant love, and respond by challenging ourselves with the question, what does it look like to give of ourselves for those around us? What does that look like? Just ask the question. It takes courage to ask that question, but it's a question I want you to wrestle with. I hope our community groups get together and they ask that question. What does it look like to give of myself for the sake of the other people? Where are the needs? 
and how can I meet them? If, if you have a family, then sit, talk about this at dinner. Uh, uh, imagine with, uh, with vigor and ener- energy, like where are the needs and how can I meet them? Ask the question and begin to imagine together. And then let me ask you, can you imagine the kind of beautiful community that that kind of a willing spirit would create amongst us? Can you imagine that? Well, I've got good news for you. That is the very kingdom that Jesus is building amongst us. That's the one that he promises to us. And it will humble us, but it will make much of Jesus to our neighbors around us too, won't it? 1878, William Booth had just launched the Salvation Army. Um, Organization calling people to radical acts of service all over the world. Uh, And uh, a guy named... And people, people... we're traveling to England from all over the world in order to enlist in this Salvation Army. And uh, one man uh, left America for England. He was a former Methodist minister who left the pastorate, traveled across the ocean. His name was Samuel Logan Bringle. Bringle. Not like Pringle, but Bringle, okay? And he left, he left the pastorate, and he was the first American-born commissioner in the Salvation Army, and it said that when he met William Booth, Booth didn't think much of Mr. Bringle at all. He, uh, he, he actually accepted his services rather grudgingly, uh, and he said to him, Booth said to Bringle, he said, you have been your own boss too long, and uh, in order to instill humility, Booth put Bringle to work cleaning polishing the boots of the other trainees who had just... Have I followed my own fancy across the Atlantic Ocean in order to polish people's boots? And then, as if in a vision, he saw Jesus, his king, bending over the feet of rough fishermen, and he whispered a prayer. He said, Lord, you wash their feet. I will polish these boots. And my hope for you this morning is that that prayer might be your prayer too. That you will look at Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And that you will see the ways he is at work right now washing your feet. And you will ask the question, where are you calling me to wash feet? Wherever you send me, I'll go. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you might overwhelm our spirits with the wonder at the truth of what Jesus has done for us, and that you will make us those with grateful hearts, eager to go and to serve and to give of ourselves for whatever needs we're surrounded by that you move us toward. Would you make us, as your church, a true embodiment of what you have done and what you promised to do? Help us to hear these words. And give of ourselves for your sake, your kingdom mission, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.